Okay, good evening everybody. Um, it's good to be with you, even if remotely. I was hoping that um, I might have been able to do this face-to-face, -face, but sadly uh, we haven't quite got there yet. Um, do uh, keep your Bibles open. We say that every week, but today I, I think it's going to be really clear why we say that. Um, and so uh, before we start, um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have gathered us here today, uh, even if not together in person. We are in spirit. Uh, we come before your word now, and I ask that you would teach us, um, that you would use my words, um, and ensure that they are your words and your teaching, and for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, we are in the midst of a series looking at the early chapters of Revelation. Um, and this evening, we're going to be looking at um, this letter to the church in Thyatira. Thyatira is the fourth church to be addressed so far, and according to commentators, it's the church that we know the least about. Um, at the time of writing, uh, Thyatira was a prosperous manufacturing centre, and archaeologists have discovered that it was home to numerous trade guilds. Um, amongst other things, it was known for its dye industry, and in Acts chapter 16, you can read of Lydia, uh, one of the first believers uh, in Philippi after hearing uh, Paul preach, who in fact came uh, from Thyatira. Um, and there's evidence as well for a range of other guilds, uh, including bakers, leather workers, uh, linen workers, and bronzesmiths. And as I've been thinking about this passage over the last couple of weeks, I couldn't help but wonder what it must have been like for the Thyatirans as the letter was read out. Um, as a child between the ages of 8 and 13, I went to a school where at the end of each term, uh, all of my teachers would write a report about me in each subject, and that would go off to the headmaster. Uh, and then each pupil was summoned to the headmaster's office. Uh, and the worst bit was definitely sitting outside, waiting to go in. There was usually no one else around, so often you would put your ear to the door. Um, and the worst possible situation was to hear the headmaster barking uh, at the pupil in front of you who'd then out, uh, run out red-faced and teary-eyed. Uh, and I wonder what the Thyatirans must have been thinking as this letter moved on from uh, talking to Ephesus, who were commended uh, for their knowledge but lacked love, uh, the impressive character of the church in Smyrna uh, in the face of suffering, uh, and the prevalence of false teaching in Pergamon. And as we'll see, given some of the par parallels between this letter uh, to Thyatira, and to the church in Pergamon, I wonder if they were starting to shift slightly uneasily in their seats. But the letter starts well. Uh, it's a church with much to commend it. The church in Thyatira is declared to be one of love and faith. Um, in biblical terms, the church refers to the people of God, uh, people who are a product of God's love, lost world, uh, a people who've been rescued from darkness and brought into light. And so in response to God and their new status, the people of God at the church should be marked by love for him and for one another. In contrast to the church in Ephesus, the Thyatirans are commended for their love. So to their faith, now that they know Jesus, they've put their trust in him and are depending on him. And the natural consequence of love and faith are deeds, as we saw in our series on James. And these verses declare that the church of Thyatira uh, are demonstrating the marks of genuine love and faith. They appear to be serving God and one another, not just with the enthusiasm of new converts, but they're persevering 
and growing. They're doing more than they did at first. The church in Thyatira seems to be the real deal. But like all reviews, what is often just as important is the content, as the content is the source. As, you, uh, as, you, as I wait for the tube uh, on the underground, I always like to look at film posters. Uh, they're often plastered with a multitude of stars, corresponding to the rating by a range of critics. And on closer inspection, underneath the rating is your source. And through bitter experience, I can tell you that not all five-star reviews are created equally. Uh, a five-star review uh, for Chicken Run from Empire magazine uh, is certainly worth a lot more than that from Poultry World, World magazine. But these deeds of the church in Thyatira, their love, faith, service, and perseverance are proclaimed by the Son of God, Jesus himself. As in the other letters, we're given a couple of characteristics used to describe Jesus' appearance that we saw detailed in the second half of chapter one. Look at verse 18. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, there's no doubt that this description speaks wonderfully of the awesome appearance and nature of the risen Lord Jesus. But for those in Thyatira, it's likely it would have had extra special resonance, given the bronze industry uh, located in Thyatira. Now, if you're, un uh, if you're like me, you're unlikely to have given much thought as to how bronze is made since you were at school. The Thyatira would have been full of furnaces around the city. They would have known exactly what it took to extract the metals from the ground, the intensity and the heat of the fire and the skill of the craftsmanship required to fashion the bronze into its final product. And so here before them stands the Lord Jesus who sees with penetrating, blazing eyes. He sees all things and so is utterly trustworthy. And he commends them for their love, their faith, their perseverance and their growth. One might imagine as the Thyatiran postman delivers the letter, the church gather and the letter is read out, that the sense of unease as to what was coming is rapidly disappearing. But whilst Christ has much to commend, the core of the letter is a dire warning. They are a church being misled. Verse 20, nevertheless, despite all these good things, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she leads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, whilst perhaps not as commonly used as it once was, it's testament to the significance of Queen Jezebel in the Old Testament that the term Jezebel is still used even today as an insult. Its modern meaning is unpleasant enough, but for those with a knowledge of the Old Testament, they would have understood the seriousness of such an accusation. So I thought it might be helpful to recap um, the story of Jezebel to help us understand why her name is invoked in Thyatira. So come back to me if you will uh, to about 875 BC or so. Um, a few generations before Solomon's reign had ended and Israel are in trouble. The kingdom is split into two and the northern kingdom, Israel, is now ruled by King Ahab. And in 1 Kings chapter 16, Ahab is introduced and is described as having done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And just to be clear, those that came before him have been described in similar terms. And the verse goes on to say, but he also married Jezebel, 
daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. The earthly king of God's chosen people has disobeyed God by marrying a woman from outside of Israel, the daughter of a priest king, and with her she brings Baal worship, and Ahab too begins to serve Baal and worship him. We don't hear anything more of Jezebel until a couple of chapters later, by, when, uh, by which time we learn that she's been busying herself, killing off the prophets of the Lord. And there are now 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah eating at Jezebel's table. What follows is that famous story of Elijah on Mount Carmel um, in a bid for Israel to repent and uh, turn back to the Lord. He gathers the people of Israel and challenges the prophets of Baal to see if the Lord or Baal is really the one true God. What he says is that we'll ask uh, God uh, to send fire to burn up the sacrifice. The prophets of Baal agree, but are humiliated as their pleas to Baal go unanswered. In contrast, Elijah drenches his sacrifice with water before calling upon the Lord, who promptly sends fire from heaven, burning up the sacrifice in an instant. The people gathered to watch do indeed declare the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. We don't really hear what Ahab thinks, except that he relays everything that has happened to Jezebel, including the execution of the prophets of Baal. Will Jezebel repent and declare that the Lord is God? Well, this is her response. She sends a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not, I do not make your life like that of one of them, that is, the prophets of Baal. She stands absolutely unrepentant, opposed to God, threatening to kill him. So back to our chapter in Revelation. Here is the one with blazing eyes who sees all things, telling the church in Thyatira, you have a woman like this in your midst, one who is opposed to God, worshipping another and turning my people away from me. She appears to hold or at least claim a position of authority within the church. She calls herself a prophetess. But rather than teaching the gospel, she seems to be something, uh, offering something extra, a gospel plus ministry, an offer of super spirituality, uh, but one that Jesus calls out as Satan's so-called deep secrets. Now, from what we know, it's likely that membership of one of the Thyatiran trade guilds would have involved pagan feasts and festivals held in honour of the local deity with the hope of securing his favour and ensuring a prosperous future for their guild and its work. And just as in Corinth and across the empire, it's likely that sexual activity went hand in hand with life in the temple and these pagan festivals. And so the Thyatirans were faced with a difficult choice. As followers of Jesus, they needed to leave behind their old practices and customs. But for an individual to choose not to be involved in pagan feasts may well have meant non-membership of the guild, which would have had serious consequences for their livelihood and their social position. And we saw a similar dilemma in our first reading when we read of King Ahab wanting to buy Naboth's vineyard. His offer to Naboth seems reasonable. Give me your vineyard in return for a better one or a cash settlement. But for Naboth, there was a much more important issue at stake. And so he declines because the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. 
And I don't suppose Naboth was in any doubt that refusing King Ahab's request was unlikely to be free of consequence. But when the difficult thing was to follow God, he chose to obey him. In contrast, Ahab's uh, response is to sulk that the Lord's commands preclude Naboth from selling him the land. But Jezebel's response is, cheer up Ahab. You can have what you want. And so she arranges for Naboth to be murdered so that Ahab can take ownership of the vineyard. So as the Thyatirans ponder a similar choice, whether to obey God or indulge and please themselves as they go to church in search of answers, they find themselves told not to worry. It's not a question of one or the other, says Jezebel. Let me show you how you can have both. And these two are real questions that we are likely to have to grapple with throughout our lives. And we're unlikely to be invited to engage in pagan festivals or sex cults. But we will be faced by whether to turn a blind eye to dishonest practices at work. We'll wonder perhaps whether to compromise our faith in the way we conduct ourselves in or after work in order to progress our careers. Increasingly, it seems likely that if we openly hold to biblical views on marriage, sexuality and identity, that we're likely to face social exclusion, unemployment, and perhaps in time even face the force of the law. Let's not pretend that making these decisions are easy. Before we knew Jesus, we spent our whole lives justifying behaviour that we knew to be wrong, such that it was second nature. And if you're anything like me, in most areas of my life, that temptation does not disappear the day we learn to follow Jesus. So we desperately need one another. We need our churches to stand firm as we seek to live differently. Our local church needs to be a place where the message of Jesus is taught faithfully and repeatedly, and where together we can encourage one another to make wise and godly decisions. And yet we could easily find churches across the land that will teach that there is no conflict between the Bible and a progressive, permissive view of sex, or the pursuit of worldly pleasures, or any other similar decision we might be struggling with. It's so appealing because it's just what our sinful nature wants to hear. By squaring away these apparent conflicts, we're told we can follow God and please man. And yet to do so is to choose idolatry and self-indulgence over God. And if we're not on our guard, we will miss the Jezebel in our midst. No wonder Jesus' anger when instead of being a place of truth and safety, the church is tolerating one who is misleading his servants and diverting their gaze away from Jesus and towards it, idols. So that is why we ask you to keep uh, your Bibles open during the service. Perhaps sometimes it sounds a little formulaic at the beginning of each talk, but it's vital that you can check that what the preacher is saying is in keeping with the Bible. That's why we encourage people uh, to read the Bible both individually, but also to gather in small groups week by week so that we're familiar in the, uh, with the Bible uh, and holding to its teaching. The wolf who enters our midst will not declare themselves to be a wolf, but we are to be alert to their big ears, their big eyes, and their big teeth, lest we be devoured. And if we know our Bible, that's our best chance of finding the wolf. But perhaps where this passage starts to feel a little more uncomfortable and a little close to home is not what we follow, but what we might tolerate. Note how Jesus' accusation is not just levelled at Jezebel and her followers, but those that tolerate her. And I wonder what it is that we might tolerate. How seriously do we confront the false teaching we hear 
outside of our own local church? Do we encounter teaching in other settings, such as a small group or a work Bible study that we know to be wrong? To speak up against such teaching may well be costly. We risk conflict or a friendship, um, or will we risk conflict or a friendship so that we don't tolerate what may mislead brothers and sisters away from Jesus? Or do we let things pass and convince ourselves that perhaps it's not too serious after all? And if that's our view, Jesus makes it very clear that we are to take these issues with the utmost seriousness. In response to the murder of Naboth, Elijah confronts Ahab and pronounces the Lord's judgment on him and his house, as well as declaring that Jezebel will be devoured by dogs in Jezreel. And if you want to read the account of that, it's in 2 Kings uh, chapter 9. Such a gruesome end to Jezebel in the Old Testament is meant to shock us. It's a sign of how seriously God considers sin and those who would harm his people. So too, the Thyatira and Jezebel will receive the justice she deserves, although even for her, God has shown her mercy and given her time to repent, and yet she will not. But whilst Jezebel remains unrepentant, Jesus makes it clear that there is an urgent need for those that have followed her, who have tolerated her to repent and turn back to him. To do so, rather than leading to the best of both worlds, a happy compromise will lead to suffering and even death. Now, if we were to finish there, I wonder how the church of Thyatira might be feeling. We started with plenty on the positive side of the balance sheet, but what followed surely would have left them feeling downcast. Well, wonderfully, he holds out the news that they can be a church with a glorious future. Jesus gives the answer we need to hear, simply to hold on. Verse 24, now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. In contrast to the false teacher who so often claims to have new insights, new revelation and the promise of something better, Jesus says, in me, you have all that you need. I have taken care of everything. I have lived the perfect life that you could not live. I have died the death that should have been yours and have paid the price for your sins, such that now my righteousness can be yours. The son of man with feet like burnished bronze is immovable. One who can bear all of our weight as we hold on to him. I think the language of holding on to him alludes to the fact that life will not be easy. It wasn't easy for Elijah and Naboth or Antipas, as we saw last week, and it wasn't easy for the Thyatirans. These were decisions that carried real costs, uh, and for many other Christians uh, at that time, uh, faced local and state persecution for what they believed. It wasn't easy then, and we cannot expect that it will be easy for us today. We see that through our partnership with Open Doors, and increasingly we see it in our local uh, communities. So not only does Jesus encourage them to hold on to him, but also to look ahead. Uh, he goes on to quote uh, Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Well, Psalm 2 paints a picture of rulers and authorities uh, of this world mocking God, declaring that they're going to throw off his uh, authority 
and instead do. And how does God respond? He laughs and scoffs before declaring that his son's throne has been established and that he has given Jesus authority over this world and the nations will be his inheritance. For those that take refuge in Jesus, there is blessing. So to the fearful Christian clinging on to Jesus, he says, if you overcome and do my will to the end, you will share in my rule and enjoy the blessing of my everlasting kingdom as he sweeps away all those that oppose him forever. And extraordinarily, if that wasn't enough, isn't verse 28 amazing? Almost a little throwaway uh, line. I will also give him the morning star. And we see from Revelation 22 that that morning star is Jesus himself. He has, of course, already given himself to us as he gave up his life on the cross. He continues to do so through the gift of his Holy Spirit so that we may hold on to what he has taught us. And he will do so in the future as his glory fills everyone and everything in the new creation. And we will fully realize what we were created for. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he has done for us and that he is utterly dependable. Father, I pray that we would hold on to him uh, no matter what we face. Help us to encourage one another to hold on uh, and to resist those who would lead us away. Uh, we ask that we may do this in your strength and for your glory. Amen.